are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Good. All right. Well, uh, this is one of those situations where I've got this really kind of broad topic that I've been chewing on for a long time. And this morning, I'm just kind of taking that big, broad topic that I've been chewing on, taking a cookie cutter and going, let's talk about this part. You know, does that make sense? Okay. So I'm going to try to keep it as concise as possible. Uh, Wish me luck. Um, so let's start by talking about sin. <laughs> Mixed reviews, that's great. <laughs> Mostly excitement, interesting. Um, <laughs> so I want to just take a second uh, just to kind of uh, engage with our idea of what sin is, just kind of briefly touch on this so that we can go to the, to the next part. So um, you know, all of us kind of have a different view of, of exactly what sin is, like uh, doing something wrong or doing something bad maybe is how we were perhaps raised with that if we were, you know, grew up in the church. But today I want to talk about, uh, or, or rather talk in the context of sin with a, with a capital S, like this thing that's kind of bigger than one individual thing, but the, the idea of sin, like of sin entering the, the world, Yeah. Does that make sense? And I want to take a second just to kind of draw a little bit of picture of, of what that is. And you know, I've heard a lot of um, different attempts to try to concisely describe what sin is. And the one that, that I like best is that, that uh, sin is anything that's divergent from God's nature. It's not a bad definition. It's nice and concise, really simple. Anything that is apart from his nature, whether that's an action, a thought, a mindset, a belief system, uh, you, know, you know, what have you. And so um, there was this, um, so, so we all know that we have all sinned, yeah? If, if not, maybe come up afterwards, someone can talk to you about that and we'll work, work, work on that. And so why, why do we do that? Why do we do that? When I was in, you know, youth group, usually it was kind of taught from this, like, uh, you know, well, because sin feels nice. Sin is really fun. You know, sin, uh, uh, you know, I don't know why they would say it that way, but that's the way it was kind of taught to me of like, you know, and it's, it's uh, tempting, right? Anyone get taught kind of why we sin in that kind of respect? Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be born, born into sin, I know this is a very, uh, you know, exciting topic for this morning. Don't worry. We're just going to define some terms and then kind of move on from here. But uh, so to, to draw a little bit of a picture of this, uh, one of the great things about human beings is that we're fantastic learners. We're really good at learning. We are, most of our brain is designed to learn. And before we move forward from that, I just wanted to take a brief pause that no matter what your experience was in school or no matter what teacher person told you something, you are designed to learn and you're really good at it. And no matter how many cute phrases you have about like old dogs and new tricks and all that stuff, it's something you're designed to do for the, your entire life until you die. You are, you are designed to learn. You're fundamentally designed to learn. It's one of the most beautiful things about us. It's great. Uh, one of the problems with that is that we were born into a world that has sin. So there's these um, uh, uh, behavioral psychologists who uh, did this test. 
So they took uh, three groups of dogs. They had the control test dogs and the, the others. And so for, this, uh, for the control group, they just put them in this room that had nothing really special going on. They were just in this room. For the second group, they would emit a little electrical shock from the ground. Uh, <laughs> dog lovers, just stick with me for a minute. <laughs> This is a talk about sin, after all. Um, but <laughs> so uh, they would emit a, a periodic uh, electrical shock, and they would put a little button or a switch that the dog could hit that would turn the, the shock off. The third group, uh, and I apologize in advance for this, uh, they just kind of left the shock going and had no way to turn it off. And so they did this for a period of time. And then they took the dogs to another room where one side of the room provided a shock and the other side of the room did not provide a shock. And so the dogs in the control group that had, no, had received no shock before, the second they were shocked, immediately kind of wandered around and found the side of the room that didn't provide a shock and just immediately went over there. The group that uh, had the switch, same kind of behavior, immediately looked around, didn't see any kind of the same switch that they had learned to see in the previous experiment, eventually found their way over to the other side of the room and said, yeah, that's great. The group that had been in the room with the shock that they couldn't do anything about just stayed on that side of the room. And so what did this experiment teach us? Uh, first, it taught us to never give a dog to a behavior psychologist. <laughs> um, secondly, uh, it taught us something that maybe you could learn intuitively, but it, it taught it through an experiment, which is that helplessness is a learned behavior. And suddenly this idea of being born into sin has a little bit of a bigger picture behind it. Because it's funny, it always sat, even when I was a kid, it used to sit a little bit weird with me that, uh, you know, a youth pastor would present sin as fun, but you got to not do it kind of thing. Uh, you know, I get the idea. And, I, and I, you know, it's, it's the idea, it's the same principle as like, hey, eating a whole cake seems like fun, uh, but you might not like the results. Um, you know, it seems very fun. But uh, the, uh, sorry, just remember the youth group game, in fact, where a kid uh, won three cakes in a cakewalk and ate all three of them that night, and uh, his parents were upset, understandably. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, we can look at sin and maybe many of us grew up this way as this, you got to grit your teeth against it and not do it kind of thing. And there is certainly an aspect of, of character and discipline. And I, I'm not demeaning those things, but also it's important to remember that we were born into sin. And so that we may have learned behaviors that we don't even know that there is a world outside of those. And to be able to conceptualize that there is something outside of this is beyond our means and beyond our experience through no practical fault of our own. Those, those dogs that were, on that, that, that were in that place where they learned helplessness had no reason to think that, that there wouldn't be a shock somewhere else. They had just accepted, this is part of my life. And the way that starts to unfold with the idea of sin, anything that's a divergent from God's that's divergent from God's nature, that how that builds a worldview of this is normal, this is what my life feels like, something that might temporarily you know feel good, but then uh, cause uh, harm or discomfort later. Oh, that discomfort is just part of life. That that pain, that disconnection, that whatever the result of that was, is just part of life, right? It would build that mindset, right? 
and I, I'm just going to touch here for a second because I know no, not everyone's as much of a history person as I am. But this is we can see this on the micro scale. We can see this uh, when someone uh, grew up in an angry household or an abusive household. That what kind of normals, what kind, what to expect from the world, what to expect from people gets built up over that time, and realize you know what what that happens as a result of sin, what kind of worldview gets built up. We can look at someone who, uh, you know, maybe has a relatively good life, maybe has a a series of lots of, lots of girlfriends, what that, what that does to what trust looks like, what connection looks like. Again, not that that's a wrong thing to to have girlfriends or or, or things like that. I'm not going to get into all that right now, but it's, (laughs) but it's easy to see how, depending on the circumstances, but depending on your expectations, how that could build a worldview right? Even when there's relatively little quote unquote going wrong, or maybe even nothing that we would explicitly call a sin, right? Does that make sense? So again, this is, this is so that we're all understanding what the big S sin is, this, this global thing. Um, I, I was a missionary kid growing up and we lived in a post-communist Russia, 1991. So it was right after the fall of communism. And that was a beautiful experience for many reasons because people were so hungry for the gospel at, the, at that time. But one of the fascinating things was to get a very clear snapshot of a much bigger, wide-sweeping cultural picture of sin, how it affected an entire country, an entire people group. You know, I grew up in an era where the Russians were the bad guys in movies, you know. I mean, they, they fought Rocky even, you know. This is... <laughs> You know, Red Dawn, they're going to come, you know, on the parachutes and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of getting that way now, but that's a separate thing. Um, but, uh, and then I go there and I realize my, uh, you know, 80s action movie view of this sin, this evil thing, this divergence from God's nature was so much more complex than that. There was so much more going on. There was people on the other side of that experience that were good people who loved their families, who were born into sin, who were born into a system that told them that they were not in value as valuable as individuals that created a bureaucracy just to keep them busy, uh, that, that had an entire system designed to control behavior, thought patterns, all these things, and watching the entire generation live out the ramifications of that. The, the hundreds of thousands, the millions of individual effects of this big sin. Um, uh, again, just one more history thing, and then we'll move on. But you know, it, and it's easy to even step out a bit further and see the longer, bigger-term effects. Uh, Germany was a country that that formed into a singular country. It was city-states for a very long time, or the area that we currently call Germany, kind of formed into a singular cult country a little bit late in the in the European country-forming game. And because of that, it was a little bit smaller and it was surrounded by all these kind of bigger powers. And so they had this like feeling of like, hey, you know, we, this is the imperial age. You know, we got to start taking some land. Otherwise, our land's going to get taken. And so we got to show them who's boss. And this is a great simplification of this thing called World War I, <laughs> um, where let's go out and let's, let's show them we're not going to be kicked around and we're going to take some land because this is what you do at these times. Well, that didn't work out for uh, Germany, and you know they got uh, beat pretty bad. And so this belief system of we are a small country that's surrounded by these powers was reinforced by their experience, making them very susceptible to an, ide- an individual and an ideology that came a little bit afterwards 
And maybe they wouldn't have been susceptible to, at least I hope they wouldn't have been given a different state, a different experience. But because this belief system about their identity had been reinforced, it made room for something even worse. And then World War II happened. (laughs) And again, for my history friends out there, that is a vast oversimplification, and I'm sorry about that. But it, it gives this wide view of sin and what it does and how this belief system can affect us. Um, <clears throat> I, I'll just touch on this briefly and then we'll, we'll go to the next part, but I, to, oh, I appreciate that, thank you. <laughs> I, um, bringing it all the way back down to the individual, I knew uh, this, this uh, man who, uh, grew up in a Christian household, and his grandmother was really uh, devoutly religious, and he really loved his grandmother. He had a special connection with his grandma, you know. And he grew up and grew older, and as his grandma got older, she just continued to be really involved in the church that she was in. And, you know, as he got older and got into his teenage years, he really uh, started studying the sciences and, you know, learned a lot about uh, the, our understanding of the world, and it caused him to kind of question some of his, uh, the beliefs that he'd been raised up with and to kind of look at them in a different light. And then when his uh, grandmother passed away, he, he found out that the, the church that she had been going to had, um, in some manner or way, had her uh, sign over uh, most of her belongings to the church, including uh, mementos and uh, things like that that were all kind of sold to give money to the church. And so it took that man who was in a vulnerable uh, state and uh, put a, kind of drove a bulldozer through his understanding of how God's people relate <laughs> to one another. And honestly, it was a it was a experience and a perspective that he that he uh, never fully uh, recovered from. Uh, that one man was my uh, grandfather, and. I remember when when uh, my family became uh, Christian and I started to learn about getting saved and what that meant. And I remember I I, <laughs> I was gosh I was like uh, six years old and I like set the Bible down in front of my grandpa and said just keep reading this until you're saved. <laughs> that was my uh, solution. <laughs> it's not the most elegant one that I had, but <laughs> that was that was the extent of my evangelistic repertoire at the time. <laughs> Still, perhaps not my strongest gift, but. Um, <laughs> Um, and I remember for years feeling powerless in the face of his experience. And when I, and that's a relatively small experience. When I look at, at the, the experience of, of racial inequality, of injustice, of, of other church hurts, of, of, of spiritual abuse, of all these things, it starts to get easy to look at this sin problem and think, how could you possibly do anything against this wave of wrong experience that just like that dog that was in the corner getting shocked over and over and over just teaches us that this is the way the world is over and over and over and over and over again. So what's the solution to sin? Everyone's scared. We all know the answer, but we're all a little bit scared to answer because it's, it's Jesus, right? That'd be, that'd be the answer. But how? 
but how? And so this is where the cookie cutter comes out because this is not a short conversation. It's also, a, it is both a very short conversation and not a short conversation. But I, I want to kind of engage with this how conversation, just kind of dip my toe into it with you guys. Um, and I'm gonna, I want to start by revealing some sin that's in the room right now. <laughs> so if you would... Uh, turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Everyone's laughing, but a little bit less with each passing second. <laughs> Don't worry, the police are already on their way. No. <laughs> uh, to give you a clue and make you slightly less nervous, I'm going to reveal some capital S sin for just a second. Okay? All right. One of my favorite little parts of scripture, I say that about a lot of them because there's quite a few favorites that I have, but uh, Matthew 14, we're going to go to verse 22. All right. Immediately afterward, uh, he compelled the disciples to get into the boat and to go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when he was... When it was evening, he was there alone, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Very rude of the wind. Um, that was verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. Which is the most sensible thing to say in that circumstance. I always imagine this in a very like Scooby-Doo sort of like, it's a ghost, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. I don't know why, but that's what I imagined it. <laughs> Shaggy is one of the unknown disciples, you know. <laughs> uh, and they cried out in fear. Ah! <laughs> but immediately, Jesus, perhaps embarrassed, uh, spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter responded and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And when he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out with his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly God's son. So, this is a great story. You know, it's a fun story in a lot of different ways. And, I, you know, this is one that people have uh, unpacked, you know, many times very frequently. Um, but I, I want to focus in on one, one particular spot. So, anyone ever heard this story before? Jesus walking the water? Pretty famous. One of the, one of the top things I'd say he's famous for. Um, like, like, you know, if you go to someone who doesn't know much about Jesus, well, the walking on the water thing is something that they're aware of. So, this is, this is one of the more famous stories in Scripture. So... Um, verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out. So Peter's walking on the water, looks at the wind, uh, you know, sees the, what the wind's doing, freaks out a little bit, starts sinking. Lord, save me. Verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out with his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, this is a great scripture for many reasons, but one of the reasons this scripture is really great is there is very little context within this scripture itself as th that would imply what Jesus' tone is in this moment. Now, because we are uh, great learners, we learn tone. And one of the amazing things about 
reading is that even when you're reading something, uh, you you will hear it in your mind, in your heart, the way however you you know experience that the most. You will uh, you will hear it with a tone, and the less tone that is implied, the more your brain will fill in what the tone is. See every text you ever received uh, from someone, you know, <laughs> for for uh, reference. And so this is a great scripture for revealing sin. Not some secret thing, morally wrong thing that you're doing in your life, but a mindset that is divergent from God's nature. Because how do you hear Jesus say this? Because when I first heard this story as a little kid, I thought he's scolding Peter for not having enough faith. He is an angry teacher tone, disappointed teacher, perhaps, you know, is how I heard of like, ah, you know, and in my mind, I'm like, you know what? Peter was on the water. <laughs> that is more than I have done as far as miracles go. I, I, I think it's fair to say I have not walked on water. That is both, both physically and spiritually a very impressive miracle. You know, I don't, you know, no one else even offered to get out of the boat, you know, and then I suddenly, you know, as years go by and I have this kind of initial reflection to the scripture, I realize like, oh man, I feel the need to defend Peter from Jesus. <laughs> it's sin. Not sin as in an action that I am doing that is wrong, but a mindset that I have inherited because of people that came before me because of a, uh, generations of experience. I had a student come through school of ministry some several, several years ago now who uh, had this anger problem, just, just kind of explode sometimes, you know, and it, would, it was, he was the nicest guy, but all of a sudden, like, he would just explode, you know. And, <clears throat> um, and, you know, we started talking about this and, you know, start hearing about his, his uh, dad and his dad was a really, you know, angry guy was, uh, you know, uh, maybe not something that would have been considered abusive at the time that he was a child, but by today's standards certainly would have been considered abusive, certainly verbally abusive, just really hard, really angry, you know, all the time. And as he got into his teen, you know, initially this created a tremendous amount of powerlessness, helplessness, that thing we were talking about earlier. When he came to his teenage years and started to get a wider view of the world, uh, he started to realize that he didn't like what his dad was doing, and the only way he knew to push back was in anger, in eagle anger. And I'm going I'm to fight back. I'm going to push back. I'm going to do that. And he learned a lesson, not a, a lesson that is perhaps true in some practical sense, but is not true and not, not is divergent from the heart of God, and that is anger makes me powerful. And he had experience after experience, not only with his father, but other people that came later that reinforced this thing of when I am powerless, a way to feel powerful is to use my anger to push, to push into power. Does that make sense? And so what do I do? Do I, I don't want to ignore the responsibility that this man has to manage his heart and to manage his attitude, right? Like, like it, it, because his dad had anger, it doesn't make it okay for him to have anger, right? And, but then, so then I can, but then also, gosh, that's a, 
hard thing to grow up in. And honestly, he's carrying that in a more healthy way than his father did. And so then I want to get angry at the father and say, no, why'd you do that? But I also don't know the story of how that father was raised or how his father was raised or his father before him and his father before him. And we begin to understand and see this picture of no matter how good your life is, no matter how moral you are on a moment-to-moment basis, we are all living in the reality of being born into sin. And while we are responsible for our behavior, it's also important for us to understand that we have been born with learned helplessness. that we have been born with misunderstandings of who God is, wrong pictures of who he is. Now, again, going back to this verse, I don't know how you hear Jesus's tone here, you know? But I know that for a long time, I heard this always as negative. I heard this as harsh. Maybe some of you heard of it in a perfectionist, like performance kind of way of like, oh man, you were almost there and you just couldn't quite make it the last little bit. Why did you doubt, you know? But I believe in this very circumstance is in, in my opinion, at least the start, the beginning, and you know, I'm still exploring this idea, but maybe even the whole of the answer to this problem. And the answer is that this was not Peter's only encounter with Jesus. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. And so while we cannot draw very much conclusive uh, implication about Jesus's tone in this exact example, because there's not a lot around it to infer. We can look at the history of Peter and Jesus and begin to draw a clearer picture that can actually start to adjust our mindset. And again, this is a a, a thing that's worth a series of of teaching and and study, so I'm just going to be able to breeze over it. But you know, Peter was, was a fisherman, and he was you know, called by Jesus, set down his net, set down his means of income, his, his livelihood, and followed him. Peter, if you look at all these different examples, like he, he I, I love the, the relationship that starts to be revealed as you, as you see this, you know, there's, there's great, you know, obviously he was someone who saw Jesus do miracles. In fact, a personal miracle where his mother-in-law was, uh, had a high fever and Jesus came in and prayed for her and she was healed. And in that house, many more miracles happened right afterwards. And so he had a very personal uh, 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 in his own life experience with revival, with who Jesus was. Um, you know, if we just, ha- you, you can just kind of pencil this in for later, but if you go to, over to Matthew 17, you know, Jesus transfigured in front of him. He saw him in his glory. He saw him shining bright. And, you know, this happened, you know, just think about this. Jesus says, hey, come up with me to the mountain. You and, and these, these two other fo- fellows, come on up. We're going to go pray. He goes up there. Boof. Jesus starts glowing. <laughs> And you see Elijah, and you see Moses. <laughs> no one else says anything, as far as we see, but Peter says, this is good that this is happening. <laughs> Let's build a tabernacle. <laughs> Jesus politely ignores his statement, and <laughs> afterwards says, hey, don't tell anybody about this, because <laughs> it's, not, it's not time for that yet. But this is, this is a guy who, who again, you, as you watch more and more of these stories, you see his boldness. You see a little bit of his brashness. You see that he's willing to put himself out there a little bit. And you see that sometimes that goes a little bit too far, you know, like cutting a dude's ear off that one time. Um, you know, <laughs> oops, you know, Jesus took care of it. It was fine. Um, uh, 
you know, I, I do want you to look at this one because it's just a little bit over from where we were, but Matthew 16, uh, 18, you know, this is one of just these, uh, you know, beautiful moments in scripture. Matthew 16, actually we'll start at 13. Um, now Jesus came into the region of uh, Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, uh, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some said John the Baptist and others Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do yourselves say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, I can't pronounce it properly, Bariona, um, because, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And... You know, I've, I've heard a lot of great teachings on this scripture, and some people will say, like, oh, this is God talking to the church as a whole, or that on this truth is the rock that he'll build his church. And, you know, it, one thing that Jesus does a lot is he says more than one thing at one time. I do believe Jesus was making a broader statement about the church and about the reality of who he was and how the church was built upon that rock. But also, I believe that he was... Uh, he was edifying Peter in the revelation that he had received, not by flesh and blood, but by the spirit. And he was declaring truths over him. And so instead of just looking at this one encounter of Peter tried to walk on water, made it part of the way and fell in, we can begin to see a picture of a relationship that was rich, that was whole, that was with push and pull and, and with overstepping boundaries and getting corrected and adjusting. And, you know, again, it's all the way to the very end. This, this, I don't know why this scripture always makes me cry, but uh, if you go to just John 13 for a second... Um, I, I can just read it to you because it's a short one. But John 13, uh, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Uh, so it's uh, 13 verse 5. And he poured water into the basin and began washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with the towel which he had tied around himself. So, <clears throat> so he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not realize right now, but you will understand later. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. You know, this is, this is, this is beneath you. You know, don't, don't do this. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no place with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And again, to the very end, to the Last Supper, this is a man who would push, who would put himself out there, but would be corrected by Jesus, but then immediately be all in again. Well, okay, then wash all of me. Yeah, this is great, you know. That over this years-long relationship, uh, there was a rapport, a push, a pull that, that at the time and to this day is called discipleship. Discipleship is one of those things in, in church that is uh, kind of been reduced to a program, you know, that, that's over here. But in the time of Jesus, discipleship was a lifelong commitment to a rabbi. It was, I'm going to follow you around, teacher, and I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to share every part of my life, and I'm gonna, we're going to have discussion and conversation and back and forth about life. And it wasn't it, what we would think of kind of in modern 
modern education and modern parlance, like in our culture, that would probably look more like, hey, you can shadow me and see how I do it and I'll tell you how to do it kind of thing. You know, does that make sense? In, in uh, Hebrew culture at this time, it was, as you see with Jesus constantly, it was way more about asking questions and having discussion and actually inviting people in to this discussion, to this relationship, to have influence over one another. And there was much more kind of mutuality and less, uh, even though there was respect for the position of the rabbi, there was much less kind of talking down to that, that happened, culturally speaking, which is uh, deeply evident in the life of Jesus and his disciples of how much he, he elevated, lifted, lifted them up, but also there was correction and redirection and, and, uh, and, and all of that. So I just want to c- connect these thoughts for a second because, you know, I shared that story about my, my grandfather just because, you know, I, I remember it pained me that there was this disconnect between him and the Lord, you know, and again, this is an oversimplification as well, but because of what a church did, you know, and I've been in the church long enough to see that, to, to have seen that happen more than once, unfortunately. And it's honestly one of the things that terrifies me the most about being a leader in a church. But, but again, I know in my heart that the answer is not a perfect church, that's perhaps the goal, uh, spotless bride and all that, you know, but we're not quite there yet. <laughs> um, and so I only have my own experience to pull from in this regard. But when, when I was 14 and 15, I started learning more about how the world worked and how, how, uh, how um, people think. And I had a similar passion to science that was often uh, fueled by, by my grandfather's love for it. And I remember it starting to wrestle with my, uh, what I'd been taught with regard to my faith and, and the parts that I saw as, as incompatible or not quite, quite fitting. Um, and I don't, I want to be careful about the, my goal with this is not to compare my experience to anyone else's experience, but just to kind of share what happened to me, which was that, whether it's because of the family that I grew up in or the circumstances that I was in or divine intervention or somewhere in between, I was able to walk through that period with Jesus, talking to him, asking him questions, feeling comfortable asking him questions that were scary with, uh, and that involving youth pastors and my parents and other people that were around me so that I have not really ever had a day where I quote unquote lost my faith or, or, or disposed of it, even though I've had lots and lots of questions. And if you've talked with me much, I still have lots of questions about lots of things to this day, but, but it's for all of those questions have only reinforced my relationship with Jesus because, and again, I'm not trying to toot my horn or, or, or anything of that nature, but it's, it's the simple reality of a life of discipleship with Jesus, which is that he's not scared of your questions. He's not scared of your pain. He's not scared of your history. He paid a high price so that he could be present in the middle of it, so that he could be with you in that, so he could talk with you about that, so that he could walk with you about that. And that is the only thing I have ever seen in any context whatsoever that has put a dent in this big, long-term, cultural, global, historical problem of capital S, sin. Nothing else puts a dent in. The only thing that I've seen put a dent in is discipleship with Jesus. 
Now, just to just to touch on this briefly, because again, this is something that is as unique as every person in this room, and um, but also there are some universal truths. And so, you know, okay, I can't unfortunately do what Peter did and follow Jesus around in the physical, uh, you know, day day by day and just watch what he does and learn from them. That sounds like that would have been fun, and you know, the the. Uh, uh, excuse-making part of me thinks, well, it must have been way easier if you could just see Jesus do all this stuff, you know. But, <laughs> excuse-making, you know. Um, so what do I do? Does that mean I have this intellectual relationship with Jesus where I study the word, look at his life, look at the greater context of his, of his coming, look at the way that he interacts with every single person around him and just study, 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 study what he's doing? Yeah. Does it mean that I have an emotional, internal uh, relationship with him where I, uh, where I, in this exchange of faith, develop a, a relationship with someone that I cannot see through worship, through prayer, through encountering his presence, through feeling his presence, through learning how to communicate with him in a, in a language that I'm built to hear in but maybe don't know how to right now? Is it, is it this, this development that, that I, through which I am discipled by him? Yeah. <laughs> is it in relationships with other people, with brothers and sisters, with mothers and fathers who have more experience than me in studying the word and in, in being in his presence and living life with him, who face challenges and, and pains that maybe aren't, maybe aren't the same as the ones that I have, but, but utterly unique to them? Do I, do, I, do I get discipled by Jesus through them? Yeah. <laughs> and probably a lot more ways. That I, that I could probably spend hours and hours talking about because there, there is, I believe, no limit to what it looks like to be discipled by Jesus. And I think there's no area of life that he does not want to disciple us through. Not in that kind of, you know, again, this is another one of those maybe sin areas of not in that religious mindset of I'm going to church 18 times a week, even though that might be part of it and that might be fine, but in a living relationship, in one that is exemplified by, by many of the disciples, but uh, at least for me, it kind of is the loudest, maybe because Peter was really loud, in, in Peter's life, that I can see this relationship, even though we only have little pinholes in this, in this long-term relationship, that I can see the evidence of a life with Christ. And it's evident in the life that, that comes after Jesus died and rose again. When you look at Peter and look at how the, the firmness with which he stood and still walked through the wrestle of wrestling with Paul, wrestling with the other church leaders, you know, that it's, it wasn't just this magical, well, I had this perfect time with Jesus and now everything is absolutely perfect. It was still a wrestle. It was still, he was still being discipled by Jesus after he had left. Left. <laughs> Does that make sense? And so what I want to invite you into today again is, is two main things of realizing, what, having a little bit of a clearer picture of what it means to be born into sin, that there is an aspect of it. Yes, yes, this does not eliminate our responsibility with regard to our choices and our decisions and all these things. However, we recognize that we have been born into something that is bigger than us, that is, that is it has formed our minds in ways that we could not have helped from, from the moment that we we're born since before we we're born. But the solution to that is through the working out of our salvation with him, 
the manifestation of that salvation in our life, the manifestation of the grace that Jesus gave us to be like him, to think like him, running into these moments where we recognize sin, we recognize, oh man, I'm defending Peter from Jesus because I think that's something that needs to happen. Okay, I need to adjust. I'm not going to beat myself up about that. I'm not going to, you know, go, uh, you know, try to beat the sin out of myself with, with shame because that usually just beats more in, <laughs> you know. I'm going to let myself be challenged and discipled by Jesus. I'm going to let myself be challenged when I see it in Scripture, when I see it in experience and worship, when I see it in a brother or a sister around me, when I hear it from a pulpit, when I hear it from a podcast, wherever I hear it, I'm going to allow myself to be discipled by him again and again and again. And I'm going to make it as authentic as possible, not, not where I just bend because I run into what I think I'm supposed to believe about him, but be willing to engage and wrestle with him on the stuff that hurts, on the stuff that doesn't make sense, and the stuff that I don't understand, that I don't immediately dive in, wiping my wine away, or I don't immediately just kind of take my pain and leave, but I can have the courage to stay in there with him and wrestle and wrestle and wrestle until I come out with the sin purged from me. Again, not, not, the, not my moral choices, not just my moral choices, but a belief system that I was born into so that I can inherit the belief system that I was born again into. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you would just uh, stand up. So Lord, right now we just we just make our hearts vulnerable to you, Lord. We stand here recognizing that that, that we that we were born into sin, that some of that was the result of our choices. We recognize that even some of those choices that we have made have sent those kinds of echoes that 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 other people's decisions that came before us into the world. But we do not let that cause shame. We do not let that cause despair. We recognize that we are in something that is bigger than us. But thankfully, we have been saved by something that is bigger than us, by, by someone who, who came to give us grace to do what would not be possible to do otherwise. And so we just stand here needing you, needing you, needing you to teach us, needing you to talk with us, needing you to even teach us what kind of, what kind of language we're, we're learning. I just, just, I, I just want to bless just two groups, and this, this is you. You don't need to identify yourself, but if this is you, I just want you to receive this right now. First, I just bless anyone who, when I told that story of that dog who was locked in that room where the shock just kept happening over and over and over and over again, that anyone in this room has, who experienced trauma in a truly powerless situation, a truly powerless situation, I just right now just release the loving hand of the Father, the, 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 the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit, and, and the, the, <laughs> the justice that can only come through the blood of Jesus into your life right now, wherever you're at in that process. And I just give you permission to walk through the unpacking, the, the, res the restoration, the healing of, of that season as slowly as you need to that you have a father who is eternally patient, that is not in a hurry, that is not sitting here waiting for you to get over that thing that happened, but has, has, is willing to walk through it slowly 
to 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 unpack his love for you, his care for you, his his truth with you that he that that he is ready to give right now, but also willing to give in layer after layer after layer after layer of love over and over and over again. And in the second group right now, I just bless anyone who has committed a sin, who has, who has done something, and that you are feeling the blowback, the shame of seeing that li- cause big S sin echoes in your kids, in your friends, in your family. It is a, and firstly, I want to commend you. That is a difficult thing to face and an easy thing to deny, to avoid, to, to resist. And I just bless each of us with courage as we face what, what, what our, our actions, our inadequacies our, uh, inadequacies, our mistakes have caused. And I just release the grace of Jesus who covers sin, who covers our mistakes, who releases healing that we could not possibly have given. And again, I just release the truth that even though you made choices, even though you made decisions, the truth is that you were born into a world of sin that you were powerless to overcome. And those choices were not just a decision that you actively made, but the result of a long history that had been letting up to that. And though that does not remove your personal responsibility, it does contextualize it in the greater move of God's grace. And I just release you to walk that path of healing and wholeness and forgiveness and restoration deeply in his presence, that it would bring you closer to him and that you would see restoration and healing beyond what you could possibly ask or think or imagine. We just ask that today. And for all of us, Lord, we just ask that you continue to disciple us, to teach us, to show us the ways in which you want to invade our life, to show us the, the areas that we have maybe not, not, been, not been as engaged that you've been still speaking to us through, if, whether that's kind of losing our relationship with the word a bit or, or, or the presence of worship or the, or, or the moment-to-moment presence of the little whispers, the little touches throughout the day, Lord. Whatever it is, Lord, we just want to be discipled by you. We want to be led by you. And we just gratefully posture our hearts as sons and daughters, as learners, as apprentices, as disciples who are looking to you to guide us through every part of our life. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.